0: Amen. Let's take the word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. I just want to say it's a joy to be back with you in this capacity. Um, Appreciate Robert taking the past two weeks and a joy to sit under the preaching of the word. And I just want to say thank you to all of you as we brought um, a little Silas into the world. Lord has been gracious to us. And he's doing great, Mandy's doing great, and just appreciate all of your kindness to us and just the overflow of love that you've expressed um, to us during that time. Just want to say thank you for that, and just what a blessing we have in a, in a, in a church family here. We uh, don't take it for granted, but thank God every day for you in so many different ways, and just want to encourage you um, in that, because I know you're not only like that with me, uh, but also with one another. And it's just a blessing uh, to witness from week to week and from day to day uh, the activity of Christ and the hearts and lives of His people. And it ministers Christ to my heart. And I just want to say thank you. And I appreciate your faithfulness, not only to us, but to one another. And ultimately, the testimony um, that it gives to the world of Christ. So, bless and thank you in that. Um, today we'll turn return to the book of Philippians and... Um, Prayerfully, um, within the next week or so, we'll close this thing down and pick up a, a new work and take on the task of the of a new book. But We'll pick up our reading this morning where we left off in verse number 18 of chapter number 4. And if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Um, I want to take up the reading in verse number 10. As I mentioned um, in previous messages, um, this verses 10 through 20 are really somewhat of a, a portion of Scripture. A continued thought, what we might refer to, and many men have referred to as um, Paul's thank you note. So for context's sake, it's been a few weeks. I'd like to read the entirety of the passage, but our focus this morning will be on verses 18 through 20. But In Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 10, we read these words. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress." Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to You again to express our just utter need of You. Father, you know how incapable we are. Father, you know how incapable I am. Yet at the same time, I pray that we've been reminded this morning of how capable you are and how sufficient Christ is and how powerful the Spirit is. Father, we come to you now, but we come not in our own strength. We come not uh, with intellect, with eloquent words, Father. So we simply come to you as we are in Christ Jesus. He alone is our boast. He alone is our strength. And We recognize this morning, Father, that outside of Him, we can do nothing. That everything that we would accomplish in our own strength this morning, our Father, would be nothing more than clanging cymbals, um, the rustling of leaves, sound and noise that ultimately means nothing in light of eternity. So, Father, help us do more than playing symbols. Help us to exalt the name of Christ. Father, help us to rely wholly upon the very Spirit of God. Father, help us to go to the text. Help us to remove um, and, and lay aside all of our anxieties, all of our worries, Father. Uh, may we rest in You in the next few moments, and you, may You accomplish, Father, um, eternal things. We pray, Father, that You would do just that, and that through Christ and in Him, by the power of Your Spirit, something eternal would be accomplished this morning, Father, in our hearts, that treasure would be laid up in heaven, and that would ring and echo throughout all eternity, that this day, Christ was honored, Father, not because we um, accomplished anything in and of ourselves, but because Christ has accomplished much for His name's sake. So may He be exalted, Father, in the next hour and may He be further rooted deeply in our hearts and that all the world would know that Jesus Christ is our King as we serve Him this day and the rest of the week. So, Father, go with us now to the text. Guard it in the hearts, Father, and in my own mouth and use it to Your end and Your end alone. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As I mentioned, we come back to Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And some of you are visiting with us or haven't been with us for some time. Um, So just to kind of bring you up to speed, we're at the end of the book, but also at the end of what I mentioned earlier, this portion of the text that we could refer to and many have as Paul's thank you note. Um, Something of what we might consider a formality, but not a formality to Paul at all. and really could be what we would describe as the impetus for the entirety of the letter. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul finds himself writing to Philippi because he was provoked by a gift that was brought by a man by the name of Epaphroditus from Philippi. Something of a hundreds of miles trip, months and months journey, Uh, This church at Philippi, this precious congregation um, that was started through the ministry of the Apostle Paul some 10 to 12 years later. Now hear of the Apostle's uh, predicament in Rome as he is chained to a Roman soldier and he is um, at the possible end of his life. He will eventually, he even mentions it within this letter, he will eventually go before what he believes will be Nero and his life will be decided um, by Rome. So he's not sure at the end of this letter whether this will be his last letter or not. He's not sure that if he will be 100% certain that he will be engaged in the ministry in the same way. But he is content, it seems, uh, to fulfill God's purpose in his life and that is to take the Gospel um, to the magistrates, to even kings. Um, we learned that in Acts chapter number 9. This was prophesied of him and it's being brought to fulfillment And maybe one of the most more unlikely of ways. that as he's being persecuted, he's brought before some of the highest men and highest names in the land and they will no doubt um, hear the gospel. Um, in the midst of all of that, the Apostle Paul is tremendously blessed. Um, by this church. And we learn that in the letter. The Apostle Paul now is trying to articulate that at the end of four chapters and at the end of, of this letter. He seeks to inform the church of his thankfulness for Philippi and the precious gift that they've given to him. And instead of simply saying thank you, as he could have done, Paul labors with his words not only to inform the church but to do so in a way that encourages them, strengthens them, and desires to leave them without a doubt as to his thankfulness, his gratefulness. And yet at the same time, he wants them to know who his true strength is and what the seedbed of his contentment is, and that is Christ. Um, He doesn't want them to think he's ungrateful, though. See, that's the balance. He has, Paul is is calculating his words to some extent that we might think is somewhat needless. So he qualifies, as we've looked throughout this statement, time and time again, he's just, he, he doesn't want them to misunderstand, so he qualifies statement after statement and word after word because he desires to take great care and love for the church at Philippi. He meticulously goes out of his way chooses his words carefully, all for the sake of the brethren, to encourage them and to exhort them in the faith. He doesn't want to seem ungrateful, but he wants to seem he wants them to know that he's content. What's the trouble with that? Well, he, he could have said, you know, I'm content in Christ, so really I didn't need the gift at all. He doesn't want them to think that he's ungrateful um, by saying, you know, it really wouldn't have mattered whether or not you gave the gift anyway. At the same time, he doesn't want them to think that he is totally contingent upon the gift. And had the gift not come, that he would have been um, lost without it. So he's trying to balance out this, this reality that he is truly content in Christ. And we looked at that weeks ago. That he knows how to be abased and he knows how to abound. And that had the gift not come, then he would have been fine because he's learned. And Christ has taught them that, cultivated that contentment in him. Yet at the same time, he is truly grateful because it has met a need. So he tells them what the mutual blessing of the gift is in this passage of Scripture. That it is a gift in a long line of gifts when no one else was there to support him. He goes on to tell them things like by the giving of themselves that they would share in his distress in verse 14, that they fellowshiped with him in the gospel and in the ministry. Paul continues to explain that his ultimate purpose in taking the gift wasn't necessarily that he needed it, although he's thankful for it, but actually it was for their benefit and for their spiritual progress in the faith. By the giving out of a right heart and a right understanding of the gospel, fellowship and communion with God and with Paul, their giving would lead not only to Paul's benefit materially and spiritually, but but also theirs. And they were laying up treasure as they gave the gift. They were laying up treasure in heaven as they denied themselves and sacrificed for the sake of Paul. So what we have contained within this, some may say, again, is just a simple formality, a thank you letter, Um, is some of the highest theology on true Christian biblical giving. And the text really supports the biblical concept that most of you are probably familiar with, that it is truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, at the same time, what a blessing it is to receive. I think we forget that sometimes. Um, And I think that, that, that it's not brought up much because we understand the blessing that it is to receive, but we often need to be reminded more so that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But even in that, the Apostle Paul desires for us to understand that in the receiving, we are actually giving. Um, Giving opportunity for others to express um, Christ's activity in their lives. And through that sacrificial gift, Paul is encouraged. Paul is strengthened. And it's a mutual transaction Um, in which both parties are edified when they are rightly given, when the gift is rightly given and the gift is rightly received. And at the same time, when we come to this portion of Scripture, we're going to add another layer to that gift. Now, the gift is not only mutual in a horizontal fashion or in relationship to the church, uh, but what we're going to see in today's text, in many different ways, is that... The gift and the giving and the receiving—the giving actually um, includes a third party, if you will, and that is God Himself. That the giving and rightly receiving and understanding transcends earthly relationships, such that God takes note. This morning, God takes note, and not only does He take note, but He is actually actively engaged in the activity that's going on in this passage. And that in it, He gives. In it, He receives. That in the action of giving and receiving, God too is a participant. And we see that in verse 18. Or verse number 18 and 19. I, indeed, I have all in the bound. I am, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from me, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That we must take note that even in the activity of the saints, that when we minister, we too are not only ministering one to another, but we too are ministering to God. Um, That God takes note and that God participates um, in our service one to another. And many of you understand that already on a natural level. Um, Even as I mentioned earlier, there is somewhat of a blessing for me to watch and to to receive the gift, but at the same time, to be a party to the gift outside. Same is true for fathers and mothers, for parents, right? Um, One of the greatest blessings that I've ever received in my life is the activity of our children in service to one another. That as a third party, as we encourage that giving and receiving one to another, we recognize that it is a service to mother and father. And this will be more, much more infinitely greater um, than that natural relationship. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline as we talk about this today. Number one, we're going to see that Paul receives, in verse 18, a generous and costly gift from Philippi to care for his need. That Paul receives the generous and costly gift from Philippi to care for his need. Um, then we're going to see that not only does Paul receive a gift, God receives a gift. God receives Philippi's gift to Paul, number two, as an act of worship in the last portion of 18. That God receives Philippi's gift to Paul as an act of sacred worship in 18b. And then number three, Philippi, as a result of giving, Philippi is to anticipate a gift from God in verse number 19. That Philippi is to anticipate a gift from God. Um, as he responds to their gift, and then number four, God is to receive praise for it all, verse twenty God is to receive praise for it all. as I said, Paul receives in one the a, 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 a generous gift. number two, God receives a sacred act of worship, a gift of worship. number three, Philippi is to anticipate the receipt of a gift, and God is responsible and to receive praise. For it all. So number one, Paul receives that generous verse number eighteen and costly gift from Philippi to care for his need. Verse number eighteen and a, we read these words: Indeed, I have all in bound. I am full, receiving from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. Again, just quickly. Paul is going out of his way to assure them that while he is content in Christ, that what he has received truly is a gift. And not only that, but he wants to um, communicate to them that he is not um, greedy for gain and not um, what we might consider to be money-hungry. That he receives it, and he receives it well. That they too have done well. And it may be that he labors to that end because in his days, like our day, um, health, wealth, and prosperity uh, ministry is not something that is um, an anomaly in the 21st century or the 20th century, That it was something that they actually dealt with in their day. Um, and Paul is going to take great care not only in this place, but in many other places to make sure that, that, that the people of God understand that his ministry operates from a, on a spiritual level beyond um, compensation. And actually, at different times, he's going to refuse compensation for that reason. Why? Because he doesn't want to be received or understood that the the, the totality of the reason that he's engaged in the ministry relies wholly and solely upon funding. So at times, he's actually going to refuse it. Why? Because there was more than enough men in that day who were engaged in the ministry for that reason and that reason alone. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, and they were operating off of a principle that Paul says actually is an offense to the gospel. Peter, for example, will actually exhort the brothers, the elders, in 1 Peter chapter number 5, to shepherd the flock of God which is among them, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Paul understands, Peter understands, the apostles understand um, that, there are, that, that, that one of the, the, the problems of the day, the great tragedies of ministry is that it is being utilized for dishonest gain. So Paul's trying to remove that. And maybe in this passage of Scripture that he labors so long, qualifies all of his statements such, and receives the gift, but he wants them to know 100% that the reason that he received it was not inherently for the material in and of itself, but for the spiritual gain that it has. At the same time, he wants them to know that the gift was a blessing. Um, Really. So informs them that it met true needs in his own life. Verse 18, he says, not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, but indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. So he goes on to tell them with three increasingly emphatic verbs that what they had actually given puts him now in a state to where he is abounding. He says, I have all. He says, I abound. And he says, I am full. Paul, again, labors to no end, stacking word upon word to communicate to them, man, you guys have truly been a blessing to me. You've truly been a blessing. He says, I have all. The word it literally means just to have holy or to have in full, to have enough, to be sufficient. The words commonly used in Greek culture could be translated completely, paid in full. No other transaction was necessary. In some sense, he's saying to them, I have no need of anything else. If that wasn't enough, he says, I abound. It's the exact same word that he uses in verse number 12 when he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. And those two concepts are contrasted there. He says, I know how to do with nothing and I know how to do with everything. And in some sense, he's saying here, the word literally means to overflow. You have filled my cup to the overflowing such that I am abounding. It speaks to excess. It speaks to more than enough. And then number three, he says, I am full. Literally, it just means to, to render full, to complete, to fill up. And then abound means to overflow. Paul is communicating in pictorial form here something of pouring a picture in a glass such that it is not only full, but it reaches capacity, tips over the top, and he says, I have more than I know what to do with. Um, I want you to know how was this, and, and you can say how was this accomplished. It was accomplished through the gift that the church at Philippi rendered to him. It may not sound like much, but to Paul it was seemingly important, important enough for him to mention it and to go above and beyond so that they would know what a blessing, materially, truly, that they have been to him. And it may be important at the time, again, just to mention, because you've not been with us for a couple of weeks, or maybe you've forgotten, that everything that we know about the economic state of the church at Philippi indicates that this couldn't have been a great deal of money. This couldn't have been a large sum. Second Corinthians 8.2, um, if that's the context, and I think that it probably is, um, of, of the church in Macedonia giving to Paul, um, it says that they were in much affliction... And quote, deep poverty. That what we, we don't know exactly what they gave, but we do know that whatever they gave was costly to them and thus precious to Paul. And that whatever it was seems to have been more than enough for Paul to, to, to communicate that he has more than enough. And, and, and that in and of itself is, it should be a lesson to us, right? That, that, that sufficiency, the sufficiency of the st- the, the, his state of sufficiency, or the fact that it was enough, wasn't in necessarily the amount, but in the perspective of the apostle himself. Right? See, some people could have received the meager gift at Philippi, and and not been able to say what the apostle said, not felt that it was enough, that it hadn't met all of their needs. They didn't believe why? Because they didn't believe what the apostle believed see, Paul understood the surpassing value, as we've already communicated earlier in the passage, of Christ as expressed in the text. Therefore, he could receive what is seemingly probably not much according to our standards. Um, but, but at the same time, he could count himself as a rich man. That it was more than enough. He learned how to be abased. And when you learn how to be abased and you learn how to abound, you learn how to do much and to appreciate little as more and as much as Christ had, had 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 done the same. Spurgeon says of this, see how little a good gift may make a man glad. Some would grumble, he says, over a roasted ox. But here is Paul rejoicing over a dinner of herbs. Why? Because he understood that the gift that they had given was actually... Second Corinthians chapter eight, eight nine beyond their according to their ability but even in some sense beyond their means that this gift as meager as it was was a tremendous act of generosity and great cost to Philippi. You may look at it monetarily and say they didn't give much at all. I don't know how a man could live on that. Paul looks at it, understanding the state of Philippi, and he says that it was more than enough that it was a tremendous act of generosity and it was a tremendous act at great cost. You may say well I just thought you said it wasn't much. How did it cost much? Because the principle of generosity doesn't is not objectively definitive. You can't say after you exceed so and so or this much or this amount of money you've been generous. Generosity is a principle relative to the circumstances and the person materially. And considering that Philippi was poor, under great affliction, and didn't already have much, considering they probably needed everything that they had because of their affliction and poverty, they could have gathered together and said, You know, Paul's got a need, but I mean, look around. Look at our families. Um, we're in great affliction. We don't have much. Persecution's coming. Logically speaking, they could have 100% looked and said, this just does not make sense. We have responsibilities at home. We don't have the, we don't have the ability to give now. They could have done that. And they would have looked at it and said, amen. But they didn't. In their poverty, they exceeded Paul's expectation and gave out of that. Second um, Corinthians 8, 1-3, just want to read it for you. You see, you read these words, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He says, I want you to know about the grace that God has extended to the churches in Macedonia, which would have been Philippi. He says, that in a great trial of affliction, an abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us, get this, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The ESV says, quote, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Imagine the picture. If Paul was there, And the church at Philippi was there. Paul may have said, no. I mean, look at you guys. You need the money. And you would have seen the the church at Philippi and the leaders there begging the apostles... Saying, let us, give us the favor of God. Allow us the blessing to enter into the ministry of the saints. And what you're doing there in Rome in getting the gospel to the world. It says that the churches at Macedonia implored the apostles. Begged the saints, let us take part in this gospel effort. And they yielded. The dear saints begged to sacrifice. They begged to take pains. They begged to deny themselves even beyond their ability. No manipulation, no coercion, no fundraisers, nothing. It was the fruit of gospel transformation that provoked these brothers and sisters and a love for Paul and service to God out of a heart of gratitude to Christ to materially take care of Paul's need. One brother says, giving, quote, giving, is to be generous and sacrificial because it is that type of giving that puts the all-satisfying richness of the glory of Christ on full display. End quote. He says that this is what characterizes God's people. And when this thing goes on, it, 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 it displays the glory of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, uh, as you take upon His character and give be of yourself and even beyond yourself seemingly, why, for the sake of the saints and for the glory of God. That if you have Christ, you have all that you need. And when you understand that contentment in Christ, you become free of this world's material to give sacrificially because Christ is worth more than it all. That was the key to Paul's giving and to the Philippi's giving. That They were content in Christ such that they lost their grip upon the things of the world and that Paul and the Gospel meant more to them. Thus they gave. Number two, not only does Paul receive the gift, but number two, maybe even more importantly, God receives Philippi's gift. God receives Philippi's gift to Paul as an act of sacred worship. 18b. Having received from Epaphroditus the thing thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, What we see in this portion is Paul moves from a language of commerce and accounting paid in full um, to the language of of what they may or may not have fully understood. Uh, Philippi was was a pagan Roman um, state and city. Yet at the same time, they had the Old Testament Scriptures and Paul pulls to their mind that Old Testament language of sacrificial worship, something that they probably would have been at least familiar with even the pagans had some sense of sacrificial worship as they sacrificed to their gods. But, but considering that there's Christians here, they've been saved for 10 to 12 years, they've grown in the faith, and they probably have a decent understanding of that sacrificial Old Testament system. For example, the first time that we see this language is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. You read these words. Noah built an altar to the Lord And took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. What you find is that all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Bible, you find common threads. And one common thread that you're going to find when you read the Old Testament Scriptures especially, but you also read the New Testament Scriptures, um, is that one of the primary ways in which God's people demonstrate their allegiance to God, again, especially in the Old Testament, was through the offering of their first fruits, particularly their livestock, and they did it by dedicating the first of their flocks um, that they would otherwise use to God in sacrificial worship, so that they, uh, the best of the best, not only the firstborn, but that which would have been preeminent even within the flock. Um, and their sacrificial giving was a display that they regarded God um, worthy of their possessions and gave it in such a way to prove that um, to God as well as to the world. And when the scent of such an animal would ascend from the earth to the heavens, again it's symbolic, um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't literal necessarily. I mean, it was literal that they did it, but, but, but rather than hearing of the disdain of God because of burnt flesh, they heard that it was sweet-smelling. Why? Because God enjoyed the smell physically? No. But, but because the act of sacrifice demonstrated a spiritual reality that was pleasing in His sight. And He would receive the act of worship um, as a gift to Him, as an act of service for Him. And Paul pulls that imagery... And applies it to the act of Philippi giving to the Apostle Paul. The act of God's people serving Philippi. He pulls that Old Testament language um, to, to speak of God's favor. And this would have been really a difficult thing for the average man. Right? Maybe not to the rich. Maybe not to Abraham, who had flocks and flocks and, 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 and herds and herds. You may look at him and say, it was easy for him to give. I'd, I'd argue differently. <coughs> but, but, but even just to the common man. This would have been difficult. right? Because it wouldn't have been um, an act of worship in the sense of giving up of um, what may have been unnecessary. right? We're talking about stipulations within the mosaic economy in which god commanded the best that which would have put food on the table and that which would have contributed to um, cultivation of the land and you can imagine as noah goes out there you can imagine as moses or the nation of israel is seeking to honor god they're looking for the best of the flock the one which would have been the most able, the one which would have been the fattest from the stock, um, how painstakingly it would have been for men at times to pull that from it and say something like, we're just wasting it on an altar. Can you not imagine how much food, honey, we could put on the table with this thing? And we're just supposed to slay it and give it? And we know that this is true. Why? Because the Scriptures clearly tell us there are times in the nation of Israel's life in which God brings indictment at them. Why? Because they did that very thing. And they didn't necessarily say, we're not going to give, but they gave in such a way that disobeyed the commands of God in a way that wouldn't cost them quite as much. Right? They wouldn't simply cut ties with the entirety of the Old Testament law, but they would with the details of it. And instead of actually preparing a meal for God, um, they, 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 in the way that He desired, they would prepare it in such a way it didn't quite cost them as much. For example, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, we read these words. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And get this, this is God speaking. And he's bringing indictment against God's people. He's saying, As a, you know how a son honors his father and a servant his master? If I am then the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to the priests who despise my name. Well, how do they despise your name? He goes on to say, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? He, God says, you offered defiled food on my altar you say, in what way have we defiled you? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? He goes on to say, by saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it to them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that He may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will He accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who shut the, who would shut the doors so that you would not uh, so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? He goes on to say, "I have no pleasure in you," says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept any offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going, will I accept an offering from your hands. uh, Even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered by my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You who also who say, Oh, what a weariness! And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared, among the nations. And God is clear that he is commanded in a way that he is to be worshiped and what he is to be, the way that he is to be worshiped is to be offered the best, something that would cost them. And the nation of Israel had declined and devolved in such a way that they didn't abandon worship altogether, but they had conformed it to their own desires. And what they would do is they would substitute what God required for something that was less than and something that would not really cost them anything. And that God is clear that there is a type of giving There is a type of sacrifice that is not actually giving at all, nor is it truly sacrifice. It's not sacrifice nor giving. It wasn't what God commanded, and it really didn't cost the nation of Israel anything. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, if you'd like to turn there, um, you're welcome to do that. If not, I pray that you'll listen well. We see that in illustration, or the, the life of David, somewhat illustrates this a point to you that I think is um, important. Second um, Samuel chapter twenty-four and verse number eighteen. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter twenty-four, uh, just to lay a little context, what you find is that, that, that David was commanded. You may remember not to take a census of the people, and in a prideful act, he does just that. God responds with a pestilence upon the nation. Um, 70,000 people die. David goes to the Lord. And in verse number 17, he prays. You read these words. David's broken. And he says, Then then David spoke to the Lord when he saw an angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned. He repents. He recognizes he's done wrong. And he says, I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. uh, That David's pleading with the nation here that it was his sin and he's praying for mercy. So what does God do? God actually instructs David in what he is to do. Verse number 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded now Arunal looked and saw the king and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aaronah went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. So he recognizes this is the king. He falls in respect and reverence. And he says, verse 21, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arnon said to David, this is his response. David has told him what he's commanded to do, what he came to do. And this brother um, responds, He says, "Let the Lord, let my Lord the king, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arnaud, has given has given to the king. And Arnon said to the king, "May the Lord your God accept you." So what you have here is the king seeking to do the Lord's will. He comes to this brother in command to the Lord. And what does this brother do? He says, what does this man do? He says, it's all yours. It's all yours. How would you expect David to respond? Um, Thank you. I'll take it all. Well, this is how David responds. Verse 24. Then the king said to Arnon, no. No. But I will surely buy it from you for a price nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And what a principle! that David could have easily somewhat taken what was not his as a gift and offered it to the Lord. I mean, it wasn't as if he came even to take it. But Paul or David understood that in his sin, in, 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 in approaching God, and in, and in what God had commanded, that God had commanded something of him. Something that would cost him. That a sacrifice that he offered from Aronai, as a gift from him was not truly from him. It cost him nothing. So what David had committed to do and resolved to do in his own life was to push that aside and to, to take of his own self and to sacrifice something which cost him something. That a sacrifice, in essence, should cost us something. It should be something from us to others or to the Lord. Let me say it this way, maybe a sacrifice that doesn't cost you anything is not really a sacrifice at all, right? And Malachi is clear that this type of giving is born out of a lack of true fear to God and for God, a lack of respect and reverence. In essence, he's arguing, you have more respect for your local magistrates than you do for me. Would you have done this? Would you have taken the lame to them and put this on their table? then why do you think it's appropriate for me? And as their heart declined, the mechanics of worship remained intact, but as their heart lost its reverence for God, worship began to transform and true worship was lost. And what they were doing was taking from others to give to the Lord which cost them nothing, or they were taking from the worst of their flocks that would actually impact their lives and giving them that which God did not require nor that which actually cost them anything. They already looked at that as a loss. They already looked at the lame and the blind as something that wouldn't contribute to their table, nor would it contribute to cultivate their land. Therefore, they gave God what was, what was, what was not costly to them. Um, and it was really no sacrifice at all. And God was displeased with that. It was not a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. When it happened... He doesn't look and say, you know, they're really trying, I'd give them an A for effort. No, he looks at it as laziness, indifference, and apathy, and it is an offense to the nostrils of God. And Paul here is pulling on that imagery. And he imagines the, the, the Philippian church like an Old Testament Israelite out there in the field looking around for the best, for the first, and that which will cost them something, that which God deserves of themselves. And no doubt it ran through at least one congregant's mind. We could really use this, guys. I mean, it could really stretch the food for another year. Or it could really ease the workload and get the job done faster. If we kept this, you know, those things over there we don't really need. Why don't we give them? We've not used them in a year. We've not used them in two years. Um, How about that as an offering? But they don't entertain it ultimately. They pluck it up out of their field, they bring it to the priest to be sacrificed, and place it upon the altar of God. And Paul is saying that Philippi, they've prepared their sacrifice. They've thought it through. They've chosen the first, the best, that which actually costs them something. And as Epaphroditus brings it to the apostle, it is as if they have brought a sacrifice to be slaughtered upon the altar, and it is given, it is consumed. And just as the smell of the animal would rise to the nostrils of God, the aroma of the Philippians' sacrifice rose to God Himself. And when it reached His presence, the text says it was a sweet-smelling aroma. God accepted that sacrifice. It was well-pleasing to God. That is the way the New Testament speaks of giving ourselves one to another. In Old Testament sacrificial language, um, It speaks of our in New Testament it speaks of our spiritual worship. Romans twelve one. It speaks of our first uh, Peter two five. We are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews thirteen five speaks of our spiritual sacrifice being a pray, praise to God. And it goes on in Hebrews. The author says, and, and doing good and sharing with one another. That the Old Testament utilizes uh, the, the worship of God in, in, in the language of bulls and goats and the giving of sacrifices and under New Covenant language in the New Covenant economy, our sacrifices uh, are, are, are largely our sharing in needs of one another and sacrifices that are well-pleasing to God. This teaches us that true Christian giving that cost us something is a sacred act of sacrificial worship, not only to one another, but ultimately to God. And that whatever benefit it brings to the hands of each of us, the ultimate recipient of our giving is none other than God Himself. And you know know that reality. Uh, Matthew chapter number 25. Jesus, in His life and ministry, illustrates the service of God's people to one another as service to Him, right? He gives it in that parable, um, in parabolic language, and He illustrates it for us in Matthew 25 and verse number 40. Then He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Um, sorry, I went to 26, 25 and verse number 40, and the King will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Right? They're going to come to Him and they're going to say, on that great day when He gathers the people around, um, verse number 33, and He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left, and the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed are my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when would we see you? Hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink. When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will say to them, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will go on to condemn those on the other side for what they did not do. And that in that not doing, um, it was an offense to the master. It was an offense to the king. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or prison? And did not minister to you. Then He will say to them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to Me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. And the essence of the story, the parable, um, is this. That ministry to God's people and the sacrifice and service that we have to one another is ultimately sacred worship to God. And that we'll give an account for that one day. Because of the vital spiritual union that exists between Christ and His church, His bride, His people, we are so bound up into one another that to serve um, Christ's church is to serve Christ Himself. And to kick against Christ's church and to persecute it is to persecute Christ Himself. That is why in Acts chapter number 9, the Apostle Paul, Jesus um, condemns him there on the road to Damascus or, or, bring, or passes judgment upon him with those words. Why do you kick against the pricks? Why are you persecuting me? Because he was persecuting the church. And that what we do to the least of our brethren, both good and bad, is as if we had done it to Christ. Thus that indictment comes to Paul. That as He opposes the church of God, it is to oppose Christ Himself. And that our worship, our giving, our sacrifice, as it costs us something, as we serve one another, it is God takes note. And not only does God take note, but God participates in that union, one with another, either in delight... Or in offense. That God does not simply ignore the reality that we ignore one another. Nor does God take light the reality that we give for the sake of the brethren, even especially at the cost of ourselves. That Malachi that We are not to despise our duty. But as in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we are to be a cheerful giver. Why? Because of what Christ has accomplished in and through us. That we are to approach the ability and opportunity to give as a precious privilege and an act of service to God. That as the priests... Were to prepare themselves and to bring an offering unto the Lord. We too are to prepare our hearts every single Lord's day or as when He desires or opportunity arises, as in the church of Philippi, that we are to do it out of a right heart, preparing our hearts for the worship of God as we sacrifice unto Him for His glory and the good of the brethren, that the gospel may go to the ends of the earth. That this kind of stuff matters. God takes note. God not only takes note, He's not only writing a ledger, but He participates in the act of worship. He receives the gift. Number three, not only does God receive the gift, but Philippi as a result of their faithfulness to God is to anticipate a gift from God. Verse number 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Some at Philippi may have argued like they do in the old days, like maybe you do. If we give this, where will it leave us? We'll have nothing. What do we do? The question arises, maybe, what will be the result of such generous and sacrificial giving that stretches the heart as well as the account? Naturally, we may think it's poverty, unmet needs, less food, no clothing, unpaid bills, Constant uncertainty, anxiety in the heart, and lack thereof. I mean, don't we need all these things to serve God? That was it. Well, Paul may have anticipated that reaction, and thus he writes, verse number 19 Know this, he says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I want to just take note first of the nature of this promise. And I think actually the nature of this promise, we often kind of put that out there in the future somewhere, in eternity as we lay up treasures in heaven. But I want to argue that that possibly, um, contextually, that Paul is actually arguing that God will supply their need in the same manner that He supplied His need. That it's not only eternal, but it's actually Temporal. That the same word need here in the context of Philippians 4 as well as Philippians chapter number 2, all of them, with the exception of this one possibly, actually speaks of the needs of material needs. That's not to say necessarily that God is going, is going to cause their barns to be full and overflowing. I'm not arguing for a health, wealth, and a prosperity gospel. But simply that Paul desires to encourage and to comfort their hearts Um, Why? Because he's in a position in which he is being totally abased and humbled with the lack thereof. And God has used the people of God to supply his need. And he wants to encourage them that God takes note of that, participates in that. And he's actually the giver of good things and honors and respects and reveres in some manner their, their sacrifice such that he will care too for their needs. He's arguing that what, what, what just happened through you, God will accomplish possibly through others. That you're not to be discouraged, Philippi, that you gave, but know that God will supply all of your need according to His riches in glory. 2 Corinthians 9, six. But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Then he goes on to argue that as the seed is dispersed, more seed is given to the sower. That, that, that Paul is arguing that you can't outgive the Lord. And that God cares for His people. And God uses temporal uh, means and even God's people to supply those needs. And that just as God supplied the need for Paul, Paul wants them to know that God will care for the church at Philippi, that they are not to worry even in their costly sacrifice, that God will return the favor in some measure. And that while you may think that the wise and prudent thing to do is to take the seed and to and to hide it away and store it from another day, um, God has purposed the seed to go forth, and the way to actually produce more seed and security is to is to to sow it as God intended. That you're not to be a farmer, you know, who sows sparingly, who takes two seeds out each season and says, "I'm going to give my." Um, I'm going to try this out here, and if it works, maybe next season we'll do more. Well, actually, a farmer is to sow all of the seed. And that, that's how he actually secures the seed for the next season, not by hiding it away like the talent's. Right? The talents were given in the parable so that the men would invest and then they would accrue more. Seed is given so that when you sow it bountifully, harvest comes. And when you, when you, when the harvest is, 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 is ripe and picked, uh, more seed comes. So you have more seed for next year because of the harvest of this year because you sowed bountifully. Paul is arguing that in the context of giving. That when you give, take comfort, be encouraged. God takes note. He participates. He receives the gift. And know that He's the greatest giver of all. He will return it in some fashion. It's maybe not in cars and maybe not in houses, but know that God's people will be preserved and secured even in the midst of the greatest trials. So Paul argues, give. Why? Because my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul pulls a personal pronoun, possessive pronoun there, and he doesn't just say God will. He doesn't even say your God will. It's almost as if he's arguing from personal experience because he is the benefactor and the and the, and, and, and of God's benevolence through Philippi here to supply his need. And he's saying that the same God that supplied my need, maybe not in this account, but in, in multiple accounts throughout my life, know this: God will supply your need according to His riches and glory out of. His treasure house and store um, in heaven. Um, God will care for you. The nature of this supply is that it is God's supply. He owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the wealth in every mine. He created the earth and the heavens and all that is in it. And He says He will supply all of your needs. Maybe not wants. Maybe not grand desires. But He will care for that which you need to honor and to serve Him in a way that all the world will take note that He is the King of your life. So do not be discouraged. And that all of those blessings find their root, even materially, in Christ Jesus, He says. Right? He My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in, by and through Christ Jesus. That these are where all the riches are bound up. In Him who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him who dwells in all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him who who, who blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. You say, you just argued he was possibly materially. Now you're saying spiritually. I'm saying both. I'm saying both. I'm saying that it takes... That in Christ, that's only when the materials actually make sense. Common grace becomes even uncommon when you recognize that Christ affords it to, to all men for the purpose of serving and honoring Him. That what God gives you, church, what God gives you, brothers and sisters, He gives you in Christ materially and spiritually for the purpose of honoring and serving Him. And Paul wants to commend to them this blessing so that they continue on. No, this is not the end, um, but only the beginning. And that God is gracious and that this is a promise that will encourage a God-centered, gracious, faithful, sacrificial, generous giving. It is no doubt to provide them the comfort um, in their times. Romans 8.31 What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? Paul argues from the greatest to the least. If He gave you Christ, then how will He not give you these things? Less things. Seemingly less things. What will He deny God's people? If He was willing to give them Christ, then know that He will care for you. And then finally and quickly, number four, God is to receive praise for it all. You know? Verse 20. Now to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That this could be a culmination of the entirety of the book, or it could be a culmination of his thank you notes. Um, and as I reflect upon this passage, as well as the, the book as a whole, I mean. we must conclude that God is to receive praise for it all. That everything that I just spoke to you about, I mean, the giving and the receiving, I think about the activity. I think about just the thank you at the beginning of it, and me commending to you um, God's gracious activity in, in my life, Right? I think about the transaction between the church at Philippi and Paul. And I think about the love that that, that he had for them and the love that they had for him and how each one of them are trying to put the other first. And Paul says, I I really don't need the gift. I'm content in Christ, but I want to receive the gift for your account. And how Philippi must have argued time and time again with the apostles and with one another. We don't have what it takes here to give, but we've got to give and even argue with the apostles. And you wonder, how in the world does, does that even happen in a world in which we live in. Where where, where do these type of people come from? And we have to conclude it's all of God. You know, that if this ever happens here, and it does, and it will, and it's a blessing to watch, um, then it's God and God alone who receives the praise for it all. It is only in the activity of God, even before the foundations of the world were ever laid, that took place in time and reality for the sake of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, that He calls out men and women, children of all ages, out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and gives them such a heart to to, to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others, for the glory of Christ, as sacred worship, yet at the same time, benefiting each of us in the way that God has so determined, placing us who were criminals and 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 vagabonds in the places of princes, priests, and kings to rule and to take dominion throughout all of the earth through the power of the Gospel, preaching it to the lost throughout the ages. it's It's only in God, it's only through Christ, it's only by the power of the Spirit that we can revel in the majesty and the glory of what Paul's describing here. And maybe you're here today and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, you know nothing of true sacrifice. You know nothing of of, of of costly worship. But you're convicted in your heart. I would beg and, please, and plead with you today on behalf of Christ to turn to Him and live. That if this is to be a possibility in your life or in the life of any man, woman, and child, it is not because and we have anything to boast in and of ourselves, it is all because of the activity of God that produces such things in the lives of men. Therefore, let us pursue Him. Even as a Christian, you say, I struggle with these. These things are found in Christ. And only in Him. Therefore, pursue Him with all that you have and all that you are. And that's why throughout the book of Philippians, we have tried to exalt Christ to that image. And every time, draw your minds to the gospel message. Why? Because there's not a 10 step plan for you to be a better giver, or you to be more sacrificial, or you to be more loving for your children. You must see Christ, Him exalted, King of all the earth and Savior of your soul. And in that compassion as is expressed to you, you begin to be changed in the inner man such that you express that same character and nature and activity to others. It's only when you see Him and see Him rightly and in His presence as you fear and love Him that you learn to love others. Therefore, let us long and look for Christ And see Him day in and day out. Let that be our pursuit. And if God gives one inch of spiritual progress in our lives, He is to receive all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. That the the true blessing of giving is not even in the gift. As I said, it was meager at best. It was not much to take note. Paul doesn't give us an amount. But the amazing activity of God is not in the amount of the gift, but the generosity and the thankfulness and the costliness and the willingness to sacrifice themselves for the sake of a brother. That it was in the heart. And it's there in the heart that we must have God to work. So let us seek Him. Not that He would change our hands or our bank accounts, but that He would change our hearts such that we are willing. And when we are able, an opportunity arises. We can display the panoply of the the, the character of God um, through concrete actions as we sacrifice in this life um, to lay up treasure in the next. Um, And that's the message for the day. I pray to God that He would commit it to our hearts in such a way. May you accomplish an eternal work even now. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory that is in Christ. Father, I know what I wanted to be accomplished through this sermon. I don't know if it was accomplished at all. But greater than that, Father, um, is what you desire to be done. So we pray that you would do with it as you will. Father, in the finite um, endeavor of us giving and receiving, of us speaking and listening, of us doing and longing, Father, we pray that you would mortify the deeds of our flesh, the desires of our heart, and make them, Father, like your Son. Father, we recognize that by nature, we are not gracious men. We are not givers by heart. We are takers. We are not sacrificers, Father, unless it it contributes to our own end. So, Father, we pray that you would put Christ ever before our eyes and minds, that the Word of God would go forth with power into our hearts and lives in such a way to transform us and make us more like your Son. Father, as we look at Him week to week and day to day, how convicted we are that we are not like Him. Yet at the same time, as we lie our, head, lie our heads down upon our beds at night, Father, we look in the mirror, how gracious and praiseworthy You are that, you, that, that we recognize we are more like You than what we were. Father, there is this glorious tension in our own hearts that as we cry with the Apostle Paul, Father, um, to be delivered from this body of death, um, yet at the same time, reveling in the glory of Christ that you have already conformed us into His image in some fashion, and Father, in this area, would you make us more, Father, not to rack up any amount, Father, um, in our wallets or in our bank accounts, um, but that Jesus Christ would be displayed in the sacrificial service of of our lives one to another because of the great love wherewith you have given to us for each other, and in that, Father, let us know. Um, that in that we serve Christ. So, Father, transform us and change us by the renewing of our minds as you take the Word of God unto the depths of our souls and produce fruit, Father, that is otherworldly, that all the world may know that Jesus Christ is King. And, Father, when they come, um, may we have one boast and one boast alone, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, we trust you with these things because we cannot accomplish them in and of ourselves. So we commend this time to you now, Father, to your end. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we'll stand and sing.